0: Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. Welcome to the people who are watching on the live stream as well. Let me just real quick uh, do a couple of quick announcements. First of all, after the service this morning, there's no Bible study or anything like that. Um, We're going to go downstairs and have uh, food together. Uh, uh, Breakfast is being served down there. And then there's going to be an Easter egg hunt for the kids. So uh, please come down and join us after this. Uh, So also, along with that, uh, no youth confirmation today afterwards. Also, no prayer meeting tonight and uh, no new members class tonight. We'll pick that back up next week. One more quick thing, the Great Divorce Bible Study, the C.S. Lewis Lewis study that happens on Wednesday evenings. We're not going to start that up again this week. We're going to kick that back to the 27th, so that will start back up next Wednesday. If you're interested in doing the Great Divorce Bible Study, Uh, Get a hold of me and let me know, and I can get you the link for that too. Okay, let's stand, and I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we're going to get into this. Father, uh, you know how much we need you. Uh, We know you know that, Father, because you sent your son, Jesus, to become a human being, to take on our flesh, to live uh, life with us, to die the death that we should have died, to rise from the dead, to rescue us from our sins. Uh, Make us really, really, and one more time, in a real fresh way, make us aware of the power of your son's resurrection this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord have mercy upon us. Christ have mercy upon us. Lord have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God. O oh, almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Romans 5. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm this morning is actually not a psalm, it's actually from the book of Exodus. This is the song that uh, Miriam and the people of Israel sang right after the Red Sea incident. I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Testament reading uh, for Easter Sunday is Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. This is a text that's about new creation. And maybe some of you are thinking, so what does new creation have to do with the resurrection? they're actually organically related. The resurrection is the down payment of the final resurrection when God raises our bodies from the dead and makes all things in creation new again. So uh, super important. Isaiah says this, Isaiah is looking forward to a day um, when God makes all things new, behold, I create, God says, new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. So that, that, that's the great fear. If you live in a country that's been ravaged by war. Is you build houses. Somebody else comes in and takes them from you. You plant crops. Somebody else comes through and eats them all. But in the new creation, that's not going to be the case anymore. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, jumping forward uh, 600 years, we go to uh, St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus, and he says this, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, if Samson can come forward and his parents and godparents for baptism. This is Samson Eby being baptized this morning. Let me say a few comments quick uh, uh, first about baptism. Uh, We know from God's word that we are saved only by faith, only by faith in Jesus. But God has means by which He creates faith in us. The main mean that we know about from Romans 10 17 is His Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But we also know that the faith comes, faith comes to us not just in the Bible. But also in baptism form as well, Ephesians 5 says that Christ has washed his church with the water of the word. In other words, as Luther insisted, baptism is the word of God and water mixed up together. And so this isn't a work that somehow Samson is doing in order to earn salvation. It's basically just God's word in liquid form applied to him. And what God's word does, what God's word always does, is it creates faith in us. So Samson's being brought here this morning by Mark and Penny. We're going to put the word of God on him. He's going to be raised in a Christian home, being taught God's word and commandments, and especially taught the gospel. And as he grows the fruit of this baptism, God's word is going to create, it's going to grow and grow and create fruit, uh, fruit to salvation, to life everlasting. So uh, Samson, receive the sign of the cross upon your forehead And upon your heart, marking you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified and risen. Like I said earlier, faith is a gift. Parents, sponsors, we as a church community, the Christian community at large, commit to help nurture this faith. We don't believe that baptism happens in a vacuum. It happens in the environment of the rest of God's word also being applied to them. And so I'm going to ask the parents and the godparents this morning if they're going to commit to being a part of this process of raising Samson up in the faith. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. I'm going to ask you, do you renounce the devil in all his works and all his ways? If so, say yes. yes. And do you believe in the God who is revealed to us in Scripture in whom we confess in the Apostles' Creed? And if so, could you all stand with me? We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. It's not in your bulletin. It is in the back of your hymnal. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You all may be seated. Back to parents and godparents. In light of Jesus' command, not just to baptize, but also teach everything He commanded. Do you promise to bring Samson to worship with the gathering of God's people? Teach him the commandments and the promises of the Gospel and pray for his spiritual growth? If so, say yes. yes. May God help you to do this important work so that Samson will be faithfully brought up in the arms of Jesus. If you want to put him over the water there. Samson, Ernest, E.B., my brother, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May God, who caused you to be born again of water and of the Spirit and has forgiven all your sin strengthen you with his grace until life everlasting. Amen. Yeah. There's a little bit of water back there. Come here, buddy. Slippery. As usual, we're going st- uh, to sing Jesus Loves Me to Samson. Lord, preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Amen. Y'all may return to your seat and we will sing the sermon hymn. Gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Okay, so uh, Easter Sunday, I'm going to uh, preach a sermon that, and, and I've done this the past several Easters, this, is, this might come, let me apologize in advance, this might come across as a little pedantic, a little bit like, uh, um, a little luxury, and the reason why I'm going to do this is because um, I just assume that there are some of you here who are, you know, decide to come with family or whatever, there are people, some people watching on the live stream who typically don't do the whole church thing. And um, I need to talk about Easter, but I need to talk about Easter in a way that doesn't smell like spooky stuff. And I need to act like some of you aren't on board with the whole supernatural Jesus rising from the dead thing and not just jump over that and act like everybody agrees with this, which I know is not the case. And I know that even those of you who are longtime Christians, actually every single one of you who is a Christian sometimes struggles with this sort of thing as well. And so this is going to smell a little pedantic uh, one more quick announcement before we get into here. This is the, this is the first part of actually a three part sermon, working through, starting this week and going through the next two weeks, uh, working through uh, Luke 24, which is just a, a magnificent chapter in the Bible. And, and you'll see as you go along, uh, you know, Jesus slowly reveals himself and what, resur- what resurrection means to his disciples over the course of, of Luke 24. They don't get it all right now, today. Uh, which you'll see when we get into here. So please, this is just the first part. Please come back the uh, the next two weeks. Or if you can't come back, watch the recording on the live stream um, of Luke 24, which is honestly one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, Meanwhile, back to Luke 24, 1 through 12, announcements over. Let's talk real quick about the resurrection here. And I want to just do a a few basic things. And one is I want to talk about what is it that we can know from this text, which I, I know as soon as I use the word know, People are like, how can you know anything? This is so long ago, and it's so, woo, out there, Their whole resurrection bit. How can you know anything? That'll be the second point. How can we know what we know from this text? And then the third thing I want to talk about is, like, what does it mean? What, is this, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with us, what we get from right here? And, of course, there'll be more to this as we go on the next two weeks. But first of all, what is it that we can know um, from these 12 verses about the resurrection of Jesus and, and I should start off saying, like I just said a second ago, like I acknowledge that some of you are a little bit like shaky on the whole people rising from the dead thing. Uh, there's different ways to handle this. Uh, one way that's common in our culture, and it has been, it's, this is an enlightenment thing, it has been for the past 250 years in the West, is to say, well, of course we know that dead people don't rise from the dead, but... There's lots of Christian churches around, so something obviously happened, what went on. And to say that what happened was this. This is a kind of a common story that we tell each other. Not, not, not me, I, but, but I don't subscribe to this story, but it is a common story that the disciples of Jesus, his closest friends, are just crushed with grief. Because this guy that they totally believed in and were following gets killed, right? And so they're just super, super sad. And they're kind of still like, I mean, they're inspired by his, like, the life of love that he lived, and they're heartbroken over his loss, and maybe a couple of them have these, you know, they, they, they think that they see Jesus after he dies. Uh, this is pretty common. In fact, if I pulled you, there'd be at least a handful of you in here who can raise your hand and say, like you know, my aunt died and we were super close and then like three days later, I thought I saw her across the grocery store or something like that. This is a, com- a fairly common experience that people have. And so maybe the disciples, heartbroken, a couple of them have this experience and then over the course of a couple centuries, like those stories turn into these legends about Jesus who rose from the dead. And, and actually, that has made its way into the Christian church. So if you go to, a, a, a there, there are churches Around, mainly just white people churches. Actually, Uh, churches in North America, churches in Europe, where you can hear this sort of like uh, this sort of like well, we all we're all too smart to think about dead people rising from the dead. It's actually it's a mystical, it's a psychological benefit we get from this this myth of the resurrection. In fact, I was reading uh, an article this week in the Christian Century. if, if If you're familiar with the Christian Century, it's a really old Christian magazine. Uh, so it's over 100 years Well, It's actually the Christian century was the 20th century, the magazine was starting to publish at the end of the 1800s. And there was an article in, this week, in there this week by, by a guy named Ross Allen who, who was basically arguing for just this. He's, he's a Christian teacher, and he works in churches. And he, the name of the article is The Mystical Significance of Jesus' Resurrection. The Mystical Significance of Jesus' Resurrection. And he starts off by saying that you know, he's worked in churches for many years, and he's noticed that a lot of the people in the churches that he works in have a real hard time with all this resurrection nonsense. And some of them are like, they just, he says, he says half of them won't say the creed because they're like, it's not, it's not, I can't be honest and say the creed. We know that dead people don't rise. The other half of them don't really get it, and they're like, I don't really believe in the whole dead people rising stuff, but somebody somewhere put it in here, and it's, kind of famous now, the Apostles' Creed is. And so there must be something to it. I guess I'll just kind of ride with it for a while. And, and, and he says in this article, actually, you know what? If you think about the way the Apostle Paul talks, I'm gonna say this one more time. I'm, I'm, I'm channeling Ross Allen. This isn't me. I don't, I don't believe this. He says, if you listen to the way the Apostle Paul talks and he talks about how like the spirit is better than the flesh. One way we can think about that, he says, is that the flesh of Jesus isn't important. The man died, he's in the tomb, his body corroded, but his spirit goes marching on, inspiring us to ever greater heights of love and self-sacrifice. He says this, it's much more intelligible to argue that Jesus' physical resurrection, and he puts physical in scare quotes, Jesus' physical resurrection was at its root spiritual. That His resurrection was really a matter of the disciples like, Tapping into the cosmic soul of this great divine figure. But really when it comes to like bodies rising from the dead, it doesn't happen. So what's the payout? What can you and I then learn? But based upon what Ross Allen is saying, what can you and I learn from the resurrection? What value does it have to us? This is how he closes his article. He says, here is the great truth at the heart of Christian faith. Resurrection. Now he's going to tell you what resurrection means. Die. Turn. See, I, I, I don't know what that, all that means, but this is what he says, and then live in this mystical body, he means the Christian church, which is the blessed company of all faithful people who walk with you on this great adventure of the Christian life, and which will hold you in all your frailty and glory until your life's end. That's the end of the article. That's, that's what resurrection is, is that you know that there's all these other people who have grasped onto the spirit of Jesus too. And until you die, you can constantly be getting comfort from that in the midst of your frail and glorious life, he says. Well, first of all, I don't want to disagree with him. I actually I do get comfort from that myself. But if you're like me, you need more than that. I don't just psychologically need help. Like My body is screwed up. My relationships are screwed up. You can look around at the world and see that the world is screwed up. I don't, I don't just need to sit here in this little kind of room sequestered off and be like, well, together we can like, have this sort of like hope in the midst of our frail. I, I need more than the hope that comes from hanging out with you guys. I need stuff fixed. And the Bible insists that that's what Jesus' death and resurrection do, is that they actually fix things. But if it's just a myth, if it's just a metaphor, it doesn't really fix anything. But in fact, the gospel writers, they know. They they and all their friends and everybody in the Greco-Roman world, they all believe in ghosts. They know about ghosts. And so they know right off the bat that this is going to be one thing that people say, oh, you guys have just seen a ghost. Or you're hallucinating. You're having grief-induced visions. And so all four of the gospel writers start off the gospel story with this fact. And this is the one thing we know from this story. I'll tell you how we know it in just a second. Is that the tomb is empty. All four of them start off with the empty tomb. This isn't a matter of Jesus' dead body decaying. Somehow his life is a message to us. The tomb is actually empty. Go back to verse. look at verses 2 and 3 with me. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, the women did, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. All the Gospels emphasize that this was not a spiritual experience that they were having, but something physical definitely happened. Something physical definitely happened. And of course, I just, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit to talk, talk about what it means, but um, so you and I both know, that whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you and I both know that this is what we need. This is, Christianity is the only, you guys, know, you guys know this, right? The Christianity is the only worldview in the world that taps into both our physical needs and our spiritual needs. Like Western materialism is going to tell you that the main problem with you is you don't have enough money, or you don't have enough friends, you don't have enough romance, you don't have enough sex, you don't have enough power, uh, you don't have enough physical health, these sorts of things. And if you can get those things, you don't have enough therapy. If you can get all these things, by the way, everything I said there is good stuff. But if you don't have those things, that's your main problem. The Eastern religions and New Age stuff will tell you that you don't have enlightenment, like your spirit is somehow depraved, and that the body's not important, sex, money, and power, that's not important. And what Christianity says is that they're both wrong and that they're both right is that actually the physical is valuable and the spiritual is valuable. And what we need to fix those things is the physical, spiritual Christ physically raised from the dead. I think a much better model is this. I'm going to quote you this poem, which some of you know. This is John Updike, the famous novelist, uh, wrote this poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter where he's kind of grappling with the same thing that Ross Allen is grappling with, but his solution is much different. Here's what John Updike says. Make no mistake... If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths, of the fu- in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, Ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted. In the faded credulity of an earlier age, that's a great line. You know, all them back then, they were just so so ignorant. You know, they just believed dead people were rising all over the place. You know, we can learn lessons from the. There's really just kind of you know their backwardness. We can move on from that. John Updike says, "No, let us walk through the door." By the way, right in the middle of the poem, let me just say this: If you go and you read John Updike's novels, don't tell. I did not send you there. His novels aren't exactly like the the most uplifting things or the most moral things to read, but this poem is really good. The stone is rolled back, not papier-mâché, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. I think that's a better way of handling it. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead... Let's leave right now and go and eat and drink and be merry because none of this is worth anything. We don't need psychological help. We don't need comfort. We don't even need like a sense of the relief of guilt. What we need is God to fix everything. And it's only the death and physical, spiritual resurrection of Jesus that does that. Okay, so how can we know that? I know some of you are still like, you haven't proved it to me. And I should just say this real quick. I don't know if I'm going to prove it to you. I don't believe in things like proof. I'm a a, a little bit too postmodern for that. What I can do is point out some inconsistencies. I think I can point out some inconsistencies in alternate explanations of what happened. A lot of alternate explanations of what happened. I gave you one of them, that Jesus really died, but that his soul goes marching on in the words of John Brown's body or whatever. There are other alternative explanations that I think don't hold water. One is this. And it's kind of related to the first one, it's this. Is that, well, of course Jesus' earlier followers believed in a physical resurrection. They needed a psychological crutch. In fact, all Christians, the reason why you guys who are Christians are Christians is because you need this psychological crutch. You kind of have to have something to lean on because there's something about you that's weak. Unlike the modern secularist, who doesn't need any help at all, Christians have to lean on this old, these old stories to kind of, Help them through life. The problem, though, is that the earliest, the, the, the women in the story and Peter here, they aren't looking for a psychological crutch. That's the only problem, is that that's not where their heart's at. They're, they're, not, they're not looking for comfort. They're looking to bury a dead friend. That's what they're doing. They're not looking to feel better about themselves. They already know the dude's dead, and they already know that dead dudes don't come back. And so when they go to the tomb... They're not like, oh, my word, he's not here. Maybe, just maybe. I mean, that's our attitude this morning, right? Not the maybe part. But our attitude when you came into church this morning, for those of you who are Christians, is Christ is risen. hallelujah. But that's not the attitude. They aren't, nobody's excited the first Easter morning. You guys ever caught that from the story? Instead, what are, what are they the first Easter morning? They're just incredibly confused. Like, what the heck is going on here? I mean, the word that's used here in verse 4 is perplexed, Right? while the women were perplexed about this, the empty tomb, and then there's these two guys who stand there. We'll come back to them in just a minute. It's not a big celebration here. It's just, confu- it's, you know, it, it's not like they're looking for a psychological crutch and they're like, okay, let's maybe we can lean on this to get us through the tough days ahead. They're like, what in the world? I could have sworn that he got buried here. What's up with that? They're perplexed. That's what it is. And, and the reason why is, is there's nothing in their worldview now, Jesus has, Jesus has he's, he's like told in advance that he's going to like be raised from the dead. Twice in Luke, three times in Mark. He's already said in advance. But even though he said that, there's nothing in their worldview that would make them think anybody could rise from the dead. It just doesn't happen. Now, the Jews believed in the resurrection from the dead. But they didn't believe that one guy was going to rise from the dead while everybody else's life went on with, you know, skin, knees, and cancer, and relational problems, and bad weather, and stuff like that, and wars, and things like that. Nobody believed that. That was not on their radar screen at all. There was no way in a million years that they would have even thought anything about resurrection. The guy dies, he's dead, you bury him, and you move on to the next Messiah that may or may not do the deal. That's the way it worked. In fact, Peter's the same way. Look, look down at verse, the very last verse of our reading. You know, Peter hears this from the women. He rises and he runs to the tomb, stooping and looking, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, that word marveling there is unfortunate because it kind of sounds like, oh, my word. You know, like some, when you marvel at something, sometimes you're like, that's amazing. Like, how did that happen? That's not what's happening here. The way that Luke uses the word marvel is always for, like, confusion, it's like, what in the world? I'm just going to give you a few examples so you can see what I'm talking about. In Luke chapter 1, Zachariah, do you remember John the Baptist's dad, Zachariah, is serving in the temple, and he goes into the holy place, not the holiest of holies, but he goes into the holy place to serve in the temple, and everybody, all, all the, the worshipers are outside in the temple, and, and you know they're kind of watching him, and they're like, "What in, what is going on? Well, they don't know is that he's seen an angel in there who's told him that his wife's going to have a kid. And then, you know, he loses his voice. And they're just kind of standing around like wondering, when is that guy going to come out? And this is what Luke says in verse uh, 21 of chapter 1. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Well, that's the exact same word. The wondering there is the exact same word for marveling. They they weren't marveling like, oh, my word, he's there so long. This is amazing. They're like, what's going on with that guy? What is up with, why is he taking so long? That's what it means. Later on in the chapter, uh, John the Baptist is born and everybody's like, oh, you're going to name him Zachariah, a family name, right? And so John asked for the pencil and paper and says, name him John. I'm sorry, Zachariah asked for the pencil and paper and says, name him John, which is not a family name. and doesn't really have a ton of significance. And everybody, uh, Luke says, and everybody wondered, like, why is he named, why are you naming him John? That's not a family name at all. One more, Jesus is invited in Luke chapter 11 to eat, with, to eat with, at the house of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee goes in and the Pharisee does what the Pharisees usually do, which is in order to maintain as close as possible temple purity standards, the Pharisee washes his hands. Jesus, though, who is a rabbi in most of the Pharisees' minds, doesn't wash his hands. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. That word astonished is the same word here. So think of this not as marveling, but as being astonished. Peter looks in and he's wondering... And he's astonished, and he's like, basically, what in the world is going on with this? This is not the way things are supposed to work. Why? Well, because why would Peter not imagine a resurrection from the dead? I mean, Christians are so used to it. They're like, well, of course. Jesus said it was going to happen. It happened. That's not what Peter thought the Messiah was going to do. In Peter's mind, the Messiah's job was to beat Rome. And Peter was on board as long as that happened. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, it doesn't happen, and Peter bails because Jesus is clearly, in Peter's mind, not a Messiah anymore. If he was a Messiah, he would have have beaten Rome. But he gets beaten by Rome. And what do you do? What do you do if you're a Messiah follower? And if you read Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, there's scads of of Messiahs, would-be Messiahs in the first century. Guys who rise up and they're like, let's go, we're gonna start an army. Josephus tells tons of stories of this and they don't pay out, Rome finds them, Rome squashes them, and what do you do if you're a follower? You take off running, because that's what you do, like you hide, because you know, like if they find me, and I was on that guy's side, I'm going to get in trouble too. You kind of hide and lay low and wait for the next political leader, military leader who you think, oh, maybe this guy can beat Rome. N.T. Wright says this in his book, Who Was Jesus? In not one single case of all these messiahs that Josephus tells us about in in, in ancient Judea, In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers of the defeated Messiah claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. Not one. They knew better. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution, which is what Peter does in the garden, or find another leader. Peter's not to that stage yet. He's still kind of in the hideout stage. But certainly, Peter's not going to make up a story about a resurrected Messiah. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, N.T. Wright says, of course he was. That's really the only way to explain why Peter, within the space of a couple weeks, would say he really was the Messiah. After he had fled in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane, after he had denied Jesus three times, the only way that he would have staked his very life on it literally peter dies for this is if he really did see jesus so psychological crutch that's not what they were looking for they were looking for political revolution and when they didn't get it from him there's no psychological crutch cr- crutch to be had from a failed leader okay so what if they made the story up what if it wasn't like this psychological crutch that like led them to believe it what if they just made it up for whatever reason we'll talk about that in a minute now listen here's the deal if you are going to make up a story in the first century, I think I said this a couple Easter's ago, so for uh, old-timers, this is uh, old news. If you're, going to, if you're, if you're living in first-century Judea and you're going to make up any story at all, especially a big story like this that you are desperate for people to believe, which I, I don't think that happened, but if you were going to, the first witnesses would not be women. All right, now, let's, I'll just tell you right now, this is not me speaking. This is first-century Judean thought all right, women were not respected, they were not considered to be respectable, they were not considered to be honest, Josephus, the guy I just mentioned, is in one of his books, it was, it's either the Jewish antiquities or the wars of the Jews, the Jewish wars, he's talking about Deuteronomy 19, and he's talking about the list in there of who can, um, who can testify in court, in, in, in Jewish law, and he, and he says this, well, well, we know this too, he adds this, this is not in Deuteronomy 19, Josephus adds this, he says this, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of their silliness and their impudence. Women are not allowed to testify in court because they're inherently weak-minded, they're silly, and they're impudent. They say things just based upon emotions and trying to control people. So what Josephus says, this kind of matches up, I think I quoted this last uh, two Easter's ago too. This is, matches up with the Jewish prayer that Jewish men of Jesus' day would say each morning, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Women were not respected. They were not considered to be worthwhile witnesses in any sort of court of law. Then why? And by the way, you get this from the story too, right? The disciples feel like this as well. In verse 11, these words, the women come and tell the disciples, right? But verse 11, these words seem to them an idle tale. That, that's just, that, that's, if, if that's not subtle sexist language, I don't know what it is. The disciples feel like this. It's like, oh, women, idle, telling stories. It's not true. If you were going to make up this story and you really wanted people to believe it, you would not put it in the mouth of women. Again, with N.T. Wright, he says this. This is in a different book. In The Resurrection of the Son of God, he says this. Even if we suppose that Luke made up most of his material, let's pretend for a minute that Luke is just fabricating stories in order to make up this stuff about the resurrection of the dead. It will not do to have him making up a would-be apologetic legend about an empty tomb and having women be the ones who find it. The point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were, not simply, were, were simply not acceptable as witnesses, as legal witnesses. But Luke glories in it. Luke knows this. And he doubles down. He doesn't just say, well, there are some people who went there, you know. You, you could cover this. There's gender, gender-neutral language that you can use in Greek to cover this up. He says the women went there, and let me tell you who it was. He says in verse, uh, verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene. It was Joanna. It was Mary, the mother of James. And there was other women there too. He doesn't mention a single man. It was all, the, it was, it was all of Jesus' female followers who were the first to believe in him, who were the first to go to the tomb and say, we know what happened was the first to go and tell everybody else Christ is risen from the dead. If this was a made-up story, you just would not do it like this. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is, is Luke is either, the, and the other gospel writers are either playing like second order games, or this is the way it happened, and they're just going to tell it the way it happened, and leave it as it is. Third thing is this. So let me say the, the third thing for the fifth thing. I'm going to give you two more things real quick. Uh, this is a contemporary argument against I'll make this real quick. Dead people don't come back to life. That's the argument. That's maybe the main argument you hear about against the resurrection today in contemporary white people culture, in contemporary Western culture, is it can't be true because we know that dead people don't come back to life. Okay, do you see see the, the, the presupposition behind that that's actually kind of circular? We know that dead people don't come back to life. Well, of course, none of us have ever seen dead people come back to life. That's true. Dead people will never come back to life is true if... If there's no God who would act in the world to fix things, if there is a God who would decide to write himself into the story as a human being in order to fix things, it'd be the kind of thing that you would expect him to do, would, it be, would it be to be killed and come back to life. So it's actually just kind of circular. It couldn't happen. Dead people don't rise from the dead. It's just a fancy way of saying the universe is a closed system, all that there is is the material. God does not act here in the world. If you, if you allow for a minute that God might act in the world, it's possible that somebody could rise from the dead. Here's another way I say it. We know that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Don't take this out of context. This is just me quoting somebody else. We know that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. But that's actually the point. That's right. People don't rise from the dead. It's impossible for people to rise from the dead. I just said it out loud. That's what makes the whole thing so astounding. That's the point of the whole thing, is that the impossible has happened. And to circle back to my first point, if the impossible is it hasn't happened, then we are of all people most miserable. We're just playing a game here. The only reason to be like this, the only more on this in a few minutes, the only reason to have any hope that anything about your life or my life or our relationship or the world outside those doors is someday gonna be fixed is if God has acted and Jesus has risen from the dead. Fourth thing, some people need it this is, I'm gonna, this is a different, different version of the, uh, of the first point. Some people need it to be true. That's why people believe in the resurrection, because the weak-minded need it to be true. Actually, everybody needs a crutch. It's kind of, again, not picking on white people today. It's kind of a white person thing to be like, oh, us seculars, we don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. No, no, you need a crutch too. And the reason you don't believe in the resurrection is because you need for God not to act in the world in order for you to carry on with the existence that you've chosen to live for yourself. Christians need a crutch. We know that we need God. Secularists need a crutch. We know that we don't want God. But in both cases, it's a crutch. And if secularists are honest, if you're intellectually honest, you'll say, that's right. Because if I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it changes the way I have to think. It changes the way I have to act. I don't get to be the self-sovereign free agent that I think that I am. I don't get to be... My free choice is the thing that validates me. I don't get to follow my heart anymore. I don't get to believe in myself anymore if Jesus rose from the dead. I'll I'll give you a quote from from, from an honest atheist, a guy named Aldous Huxley, who some of you know. Wrote some really fantastic things and is a brilliant philosopher. Also an honest guy about his own worldview and system. He wrote this uh, in a book um, uh, called Ends and Means. He published this in 1937. Talking about his loss of faith in college. And Aldous Huxley says this. Check this out. I have motive, I have motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. That's awesome. Because he's not like, I'm just objective and I can tell there's, you you know, science has proved that Christianity is not true. He's like, no, 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 I'm not objective. I'm not objective, I'm subjective. I have a motive for for not wanting the resurrection to be true. Consequently, I assumed it had none. I started with the motive. I don't want Christianity to be true. Consequently, I believe that it wasn't true and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. Here's what he means by this. Philosophers aren't objective, like just honestly seeking truth and trying to figure out. Philosophers have agendas, just like every single other human being does. Scientists have agendas. Pastors have agendas. We all do. We want something to be true. We need a crutch, and then we go looking for that crutch. That's what Aldous Huxley is saying. He's also concerned, the philosopher's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. <laughs> He's looking to prove, like, what are the reasons, what's the, what's the philosophical system that would let me just be in charge of my own life and not have to do anything that I don't want to do? Or, why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, he says, But but, but he dies an atheist. He's not like a, This is not a Christian apologetic here. He said, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. See what he says? I went to college. I wanted to be free of the bourgeois capitalism I grew up with. I wanted to have sex with whoever I wanted to, and I knew that my Christianity could not sustain both of those things, and so I gave up the Christianity. And he just lays his cards on the table. I felt like doing what I wanted to do, and so I got rid of the resurrection. And my point is just this. Christianity is a crutch. Of course it is. Humans can't exist without crutches. Don't pretend that you don't have a crutch too and that your choice to not believe in the resurrection is itself a crutch that you're using to support your own secularist worldview, your own secularist, personal, postmodern self-enlightened, self-rationalizing, self-validating decisions. It's unavoidable. Last thing in this middle section of how do we know, and it's this. At the end of the day, this is an historical question. I sympathize with the guy back at the beginning, with Ross Allen, this whole like, I've got people in my church and they just, don't, like, they just don't believe in the resurrection. And what do I tell them? I think the best thing I can tell them is, you don't have to believe in the resurrection. You can be a Christian. The, I sympathize with them because the alternative is, and I've heard this from Christians, from Lutherans, is, well, you can't know that. You, you just can't know that Jesus rose from there. It's a, a leap of faith. Like, you have your brain and your reason. That works over here at your job and when you're, you know, you're balancing your checkbook and when you're like deciding you know, how much gas should I put in the car, use your reason over there. Over here, your religious life, it's just a leap of faith into the dark. You just have to believe. And what I'm saying here, and this is what, this is what Luke and the rest of the writer, gospel writers, including Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, are saying. This is not a religious thing at all. It's an historical question. Was the tomb empty? Did Jesus rise from the dead? That, there's historical reasons for that. It had nothing to do with religion or faith in the sense of like, I know it's not true, but I'm just gonna believe it anyway. And the question that every historian has to ask is this. It's this. What are the motives for making this story up? What's the motives? Why would the earliest disciples in the earliest Jesus community, the women included, Why would they have gotten together and collaborated to fabricate this story? And if they didn't, which there's super good evidence that they didn't, one is that all four gospels tell the story of the resurrection in different ways. It's like they're all slightly different. They all have somebody different coming to the tomb first, somebody else comes to the tomb later. Did, did, Did you know when did John get there? When did Peter get there? When did Jesus appear? Who did he talk to first? They're all different. And like I've said this before, any good lawyer, any good police detective will tell you that if you interview four witnesses and they say the exact same thing, you know that they've gotten together earlier and and, and like worked to make this story pat. But if you talk to four people and they say basically the same thing and the details are all kind of slightly different, you know that you've tapped into reality, which is what you get in the four gospels. You get, so that's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that the alternative is, is that there was mass hallucination. We don't have any record. We, I mean, we have, you know, like, like I said, you know, my, you know, my Aunt Joyce dies, and I, I'm super sad, and then I go to Schnooks and I'm like, oh, my word, she's over in the bread aisle. And I, I blink twice, and she's gone. We do have record of a lot, lot of that happening. Some of that's happened to you guys. We don't have a record of it happening to a bunch of people at the same time. Look, so if I died, and you guys would, like, come here to church, and you'd just be crushed with grief, of course. You'd just be wallowing in grief. You wouldn't be able to function. I I tell myself that. And uh, it's possible that some of you, like maybe my mom, who does love me, would have a vision of me later, like in schnooks or something like that. It's not possible that all of you sitting in here together would see me at the same time. The mass hallucination theory, do you know when that was popular? You're not going to believe this. It was during the 1960s. There's no connection there at all, right, between uh, drug use and that. Um, Basically, the, the alternative theory is that it was a fabricated story. It was a fabricated story. But, again, wh- what's the benefit? People lie in order to get something. This is why people lie. This is why, this is why I lie. is to get something out of somebody else. But what do you get out of creating the story? They're not going to get any ecclesiastical power. There's not going to be any church buildings built. There's not going to be crowds of followers following behind them. Uh, there's not going to be any political power. In fact, they're all going to die the same way that Jesus dies at the hands of Rome, save one of them. Uh, there's, you know, they're not going to get any women for telling this cool story. There's really no benefit at all to them. So as an historian, historians now, check this out. Historians now are looking at the gospel accounts and saying, ah, something happened. They really happened. As one, of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite accounts is... Uh, um, is uh, A Life of Jesus written by a guy named Ed Sanders. Ed Sanders is a professor at Duke uh, uh, Duke University, and he calls himself, literally he calls himself a secularist. He's not a Christian, he doesn't believe in miracles, he doesn't believe in Jesus, he calls himself a secularist, but he is a scholar of first century Judaism. And he's written this fantastic book about Jesus called The Historical Jesus, The Historical Figure of Jesus. And he goes through all these, like, As an historian, he goes through all these accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And at the end, he sums it up this way. He's not a Christian. He's a secularist. But at the end, he sums it up this way. As as an historian, he says, I do not regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation. Many of the people in these lists of people that saw Jesus were to spend the rest of their lives saying that they had seen Jesus and several of them would die for their cause. People don't die for lies. Well, they they die for lies that they make up. They, they, They die for lies that somebody else tells them that they believe. People hardly ever die for lies that they make up themselves, is what Sanders is saying. There's no really reason they would die. You know, if Rome says to Peter, say you were lying about Jesus or we're going to crucify you, every other rational human being who had made up that story would be like, yeah, I'm out. I, I really didn't. I was just trying to, get, I was trying to get women or money or something like that. you know. But Peter goes to his death saying, no, I saw the risen Jesus, and he dies for it. That's what Sanders is saying. Moreover, a calculated deception should have produced greater unanimity. What he's saying is, is that everybody's story should have been the same. But when you look at Paul's story in 1 Corinthians, when you look at John's story, when you look at Mark's story, Luke, Matthew, they're all different. Uh, that, here's, here, this, is the final, this is his final conclusion. This is interesting from a secularist who is not a Christian. That Jesus' followers had resurrection experiences, in my judgment, a fact. It's a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to the experiences... I do not know. So at the end of the day, he can't say, Jesus really rose from the dead. Because, as an historian, he has to say, it's a fact. They experienced the risen Christ. But as a secularist, he can't say that because like Huxley, then he'd have to say, I can't live life my own way then. So he basically ends the book with this sort of tension. As an historian though, he can't deny that Jesus rose from the dead. This is how we can know that the tomb is empty because every single historical fact points in that direction. There's no other explanation for the massive explosion of the early church. When there's no like army behind it or like cool philosophy behind it or financial benefit behind it. Nothing. All that's on offer from the early church is carry your cross and follow us. If if you believe in Jesus, you're going to get killed for it. And so many people do. It's the only way this works. Okay, finally, what does it mean that we'll be done? I know this is going on a little bit long. First of all, Main point, verses five and six. Let me read this again to us. Why do you seek the living among the dead, the angel says? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Here's the main point. Well, first of all, the main point is just flatly historical. The guy rose from the dead. He was crucified, and three days later he rose from the dead. But the meaning of it is this. This is a great question. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? This is going to circle back to my first point, too. All of us want life. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you want to be alive. And not just alive, but like thriving. Like to have good relationships and good health and good finances and like to know that your community is doing well. We all want this. But every place that you turn to get those things is just death. Look, I go to a doctor to find out how I can live longer. And, and, and the woman who's talking to me is actually on her way to dying just like I am. Like, I, I, want, I want our politicians to be just in order to create peace. But, but, but they aren't doing that. Like, there's just death all around us. Like, I, I want help with my own personal flaws and eccentricities bad habits. And so I grab a book about how to be a better, you know, fill in the blank. And I read it and I try to do it and it just makes me worse at what I'm looking at or it makes me proud of being good at it and smug towards other people who don't and so I go to the party and I'm like, oh, I can tell you how to lose weight. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about the, uh, the right diet. You should choose. Or let me tell you how to parent your kids. I turn into that person. Everywhere we look for life, we get death. And the only place that you are ever going to find life is at the only place where there is life and that's Jesus of Nazareth. The man, just like me and you, has risen from the dead and will never, ever, ever die again. That's the only, the, the only solution to all of our problems is this. Now look, some of you are in a bad spot. Some of you are in bad relationships. And you got to know that your only hope is that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the only way that it's going to get fixed. Some of you are in relationships that can only be described as dead. Like there's just nothing there anymore. Sometimes it's with a person you're sleeping with every night. There's just like a wall there. Sometimes it's like with a a parent or with a sibling or with a a child, neighbor, aunt, uncle. The relationship is just gone and it's dead. And what are your solutions? I was listening to a podcast recently by a guy named Jonathan Goldstein and he had this guy who was like his dad and his uncle, New York City, they were in their 90s. They had stopped talking to each other 50 years ago about some family thing that happened. And he thought before these guys die, I am going to New York, and I'm picking up my uncle. I'm taking him down to my father, and they're going to get together. And so they got down. They hadn't talked in 50 years. And so he, he tells them, this is what we're doing. He takes them, and, and they get together, and they're like, oh, it's so good to see you. Why did we wait so long? Why did we wait? This is, so, this is so dumb. Why did we wait so long? It's so good to see you. And after about two or three hours of catching up, it circles back to the thing that's been in the middle of their lives the whole time. And they start to fight. And at the end of their visit together, they basically just say, we can't do this. We can't deal with each other. Why? Because there's this thing in the middle of their life that's death, relational brokenness. And they have no tools to get rid of it except for let's just ignore it. Let's just ignore everything that's bad between us and act like nothing happened. But the thing that's between you is so big that you can't ignore it, else you wouldn't have split up in the first place. And there's honestly no solution to fixing relational death except for the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. If the thing that you're holding against somebody else, it has to die. It has to go. You can't just be like, I'm going to ignore it. You stuff it under the bed. You can't just, oh, let's just work through it. It has to die. And then the new relationship has to rise from the dead. Some of you are actually physically dying right now. You're physically dying right now. And, and you hate that, of course. And we hate that for you. But, but we all, all of us, we're all headed that way, right? I mean, we're, you know, the hour that you spent in this room is one hour less that you have in your life. The only solution to that is that you need somebody who's able to fix your dying, dead body and make it live forever. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, it's not going to happen. But the good news is, is that Jesus did rise from the dead physically, and you, my friend, are going to live forever. That body that's sitting in the pew right now, it will rise from the dead and it will live forever. And if Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is the only way that happens. Some of you are morally dead. Some of you are struggling with sin or some sort of like grappling with some sort of brokenness that you just gave up on years ago. Or that you just live with the weight of the guilt on your shoulders over and over. And you've tried to get rid of it and you can't. And maybe you can like get rid of it here. Like I said about the pride, you know, being successful. Like you're playing whack-a-mole with your sins. Like you you can get one sin down and another one pops up over here. The only way for this to be fixed is if Jesus rose from the dead physically and makes all things new. That's the good news I'm going to leave you with. And then we're going to go on and have communion. It's this. Don't seek the living among the dead. Jesus has risen. All of Jesus has risen from the grave. All the bad things in the world are now coming undone. The new creation has moved from the future right here into the present, into this room right now, because Christ has arisen. Hallelujah. this morning uh, we thank and praise you for writing yourself into our story for putting your son here with us to be like us to take on a body like us to have emotions like us to have a mind like us to do things like us but to do it all without sin of course father help us this morning and help us all of our lives to live in the resurrection reality of his eternal life lord in your mercy father be with everyone here who needs that resurrection power be with everyone here who's sick everyone here who's lonely, everybody here who has relational brokenness, everybody here who's got psychological and mental sickness that they're grappling with. Father, would would you use the resurrection of your son Jesus to heal all these problems now and and in the world to come? Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning for all of our sister LCMS churches in the area where your word is being preached and your sacraments are being celebrated. We pray that you would bless them Bless the outpouring of your gospel there. We pray, Father, that you be with every Bible-believing church in Edwardsville and Glencar, all over the world, but especially in our town this morning. That you would bless as, as the word of your son's resurrection is proclaimed and as your Holy Spirit guides hearts to believe in it and to grasp onto it. We pray that your name would be praised and we pray that your kingdom would grow and that righteousness and justice and honesty and love would become the rule of the land here in Glencarbon and Edwardsville. By the power of your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy, And now, Father, be with us as we come to communion. And may nowhere, may the resurrection power of your Son be more evident than here. The physicality of it, the concreteness of it, the reality of your Son, all of Him, given for us here at this table. May our hearts embrace it. May we do so with humility. May it guide us into all faith. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things in the name of our brother Jesus, your Son, who died for us rose from the dead for us so that we could come into your presence and be your children forever. We pray this again in his name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good and right and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you've had mercy on us given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Grant us your Spirit, gracious Father, that we may give heed to the covenant of your Son in true faith, and above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness. By your grace, lead us to remember and give thanks for the boundless love which he manifested to us, when by pouring out his precious blood he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Grant that we may receive the bread and wine, that is, his body and blood, as a gift, guarantee, and pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers, deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship, with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless, bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Food downstairs, uh, Easter egg hunt, go in peace.